Welcome everybody to the business podcast where we pour out weekly business lessons from entrepreneurs and business owners from around the world. I'm your host, Super Joe Pardo, and my guest today is making his dreams come true by adding uh, even more value and enjoying the process. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are right now, I need you to give a big, warm welcome to our guest, who was the last person to depart from the miracle on the Hudson, Dave Sanderson. Woo! Welcome, Dave. Well, Joe, thank you. Excited to be with you and your audience. I'm excited to have you, too. All right. So why don't you get started by giving some background about yourself before we talk about the day of the miracle on the Hudson? Well, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I, uh, when all that was going on, I had 30 plus years in sales and sales management. At that point, I was in technology sales with a company by the name of Oracle. I was, uh, and I was responsible for the Southeast area for consumer packaged goods. So I was in and out pretty much of distribution centers offices and uh, manufacturing plants all the time and what I did. So I was in, in charge of that area for Oracle Southeast region. But uh, in addition to that, I was also uh, the head of security for a guy by the name of Tony Robbins. And I had a chance to travel with Tony and help support his mission for 10 plus years, helping him do what he did best. Um, and I, that's what I was doing when all, all this was occurring. But, uh, you know, I, I went to school at James Madison University in Virginia and I have a wife and four four great kids. And so I was uh, just trying to live the American dream when all of a sudden uh, I boarded a flight and uh, changed my destiny. Well, so it it definitely, it definitely seems to have changed your destiny. Um, Talk about that day, you know, because I think when anybody gets on a plane, right? Like, I I mean, I'm not the biggest um, fan of getting on planes personally. Like I do it and, and I get through it, but like, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of it. <laughs> were, were you? How did you yep. feel well, about? I mean, you obviously yeah. you were doing a lot of traveling already. So had you had you surpassed that 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 anxiousness feeling? I guess I'll say of being on a plane. Well, well, Joe, I fly over a hundred times a year, and even back then, I was flying hundred plus times a year. So I I didn't have any fear of boarding a plane. And Canley, I had built up my status so much that I was usually one of the first people to board a plane, uh, especially when I was on U.S. Airways. So I uh, I didn't have any fear of that, but it was just you know a normal day for me. And I guess one of the big uniquenesses for me was, you know, I, I was scheduled on the five o'clock flight back from New York to Charlotte, but because I always my strategy was when I worked for a company it was always scheduled the last flight out because you never know how the day is going to go when you're with a business, right? So uh, we started that was the end of a three day business trip when I started in. Um, down in Sarasota, Florida. Then we went to Petersburg, Virginia. Then we ended up in New York City uh, doing what we were doing in the distribution centers uh, that they had all up and down the East Coast. So uh, when we got to the distribution center in in Brooklyn that day, we started our day about 5 o'clock because our distribution center opened at 2 a.m. So we wanted to get in early so we could sort of see the flow of the process because that's what we did, systems. I did systems and, you know, put design and checks for, you know, manufacturing distribution plants. So they started early. So we started at five o'clock. So we got done around 10. So, you know, I have been traveling all week. And one of my goals is if I get out early, try to get on an earlier flight so I can see my wife and four kids. And so I, about 10 o'clock that morning, I called our travel agent up and worked with her. She put me on flight 1549. So I gave up a first class seat at five o'clock for seat 15A, uh, which is a little bit past midway back on that Airbus 320 uh, at uh, about 2.47 when we uh, we were scheduled to depart. So that's how I got on the plane. I wasn't supposed to be on the plane. So no angst at all, board the plane. And like I said, with my status, I was a chairman, so I was one of the first people to board the plane. So I get extra time. So I just went back to my seat and pretty much what I did normally is put my stuff down, put a magazine out, and I started to read. And I didn't pay attention to instruction. I never did because, like most people, you think you know everything because you've heard it so many times. It's no big deal, right? And I'm not on the exit row, so what do I got to worry about? So, you know, I was uh, kicking the back, reading my magazine, and uh, not paying attention to anybody when when they were boarding the plane. No, I and and you know I I've thought about that the last few times I was on a plane that it had been a while since I had heard all that that long spiel. Um, so so what at what point did you realize that there was something something wasn't right? Because like I've been on a few planes where like 
I mean, I've smelt like it smelt like smoke, and I'm like, nobody else seems to be panicking or concerned about this. Well, why not? Yeah. Well, if they're not going to panic, I guess I'll just be calm too. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was about uh, you know we when we when we boarded, we took off. It was about sixty to seventy seconds after we took off. It's when I heard the explosion, and it was a loud explosion. Candidly, Joe, I had never heard anything on a plane like that before, so it sort of got my attention. So like you, like you said, with the smoke sack, you know, I looked up and I looked out the window and then I saw fire coming out from beneath the left wing. So, you know, I knew something had happened, but I fly so often, that plane just lost an engine. No big deal because, Kaylee, I've been on a lot of planes and lost engines and I know they have multiple engines and Airbus 320's got two engines. You know, so I got another engine. No, no big deal. He's just going to go back in the plane. We'll head on back down to Charlotte. But uh, no one on the plane knew at that moment in time what happened on the left side of the plane where I was seated also happened on the right side of the plane, and it happened simultaneously. And that was probably the most unique part of this whole situation because you normally would have a boom, boom of something like that happen, multiple, but the birds hit at the exact same time. So everybody on the plane heard one basically boom. So everybody said, okay, it happened on the other side of the plane. We get back okay, right? No big deal. And I think that was, I tell people in my talks, I think that was a saving grace because I think if anybody would have heard that, people were starting talking what you see what you hear and then all of a sudden you got people to potentially be panicking and when people start to panic people start to lose their heads and when people start to lose their heads uh, they start making irrational decisions and that's when things can really blow up but that didn't happen and if you saw the movie Sully it was pretty accurate when that happened everybody sort of looked around it's like no one said anything everybody's like, okay we're going back to LaGuardia yeah, I mean, that uh, would probably be my first uh, impression would be like, yeah, all right, cool. At least it happened while we're like right next to like four major airports. I, I'm right. sure we'll be all right. We, we're, we're high up in the sky. We have a, like a runway, if you will, to, to get to where we need to go. Um, but yeah, and, and thinking in the, in the sense of that, that single uh, engine. Yeah, because I mean, those planes can fly on one engine for, right. I, I don't know, for like the whole time, but pretty... It, I, I, mean, I remember hearing something about like uh, that two engines are actually safer than four. Uh, and I, and I, I remember thinking like, well, that sounds odd, but it has to do with the amount of propulsion that each one can, can carry right. uh, the plane with versus like four engines. If you, I guess if you lost two of the, then you'd be straining the smaller, the smaller two engines rather than having one, you know, two big engines uh, and only having one le engine left. So anyway, um, so yeah, and I would totally agree about the panicking thing because you know when people do panic and they they do make stupid decisions and and it's not great. So so where were you seated on the plane? Yep. So I was a C fifteen A. That's four rows behind the left wing. So when it happened, and I looked up and out the window, I had a bird's eye, literally a bird's eye view of what was going on. So I looked out the window, and that's where I could see fire because we were four rows behind that wing where the engine was that got hit. So and and we smelled something on the plane, but you know, it was it was a, it was not a good smell, but it wasn't anything out of the you know like okay, oh my god, because the first thing you think the worst thing could happen on a plane in that container is a fire, because then you have no shot, right? But no one saw anything like that. It was just coming through the air vents. So, you know, but other than that, uh, you know, I was a C-15A, and so when the birds hit, uh, you know, no one said a word, but the guy next to me elbowed me and said, hey, man, what's going on? Because he was in the middle seat. He couldn't see anything. And I said, I think he's going back to LaGuardia because I felt him banking. You know, I thought he was going back to the airport because, like you said, there's three major airports. There's Teterboro, LaGuardia, and JFK, and Newark, I guess, if you count, count Teterboro as a major airport. So you got four major airports in the area if you count Teterboro. So, uh, yeah, so going back to the airport, you get another plane. But that's why I say that's when the saving grace came because no one said anything. And no one was panicking at that point. But then, uh, you know, as he was – circling around he wasn't going back to back to LaGuardia he was heading down heading down the Hudson River and and Canley you know he didn't say a word if you saw the movie so it was very accurate he didn't say anything until he started crossing over the George Washington Bridge and when he said his you know his famous words brace for impact and that's when I and I, the other people I've talked to who were on the plane knew that there was something uh, serious the captain uses the word dire I use the word serious, but I'll use this word because dire sounds a lot more uh, impactful to me. But that's when uh, it was dire. And, you know, if, if you know anything about that area, and I think you live in that area, right? So the, the George Washington Bridge is roughly 600 feet up above the water. 
And he roughly cleared it by 400 feet. So he was roughly anywhere from 900 to 1,000 feet at that point in time. And 400 feet is not that high up above above the bridge. So when he said that, and I looked out the window, people, I looked down, and people from the bridge were looking up. And you could see people's faces, like, looking up through their windshields at you. And it's like, oh, my. This dude's not that high up. They're probably stuck in traffic. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, was talking, I think part of the things he doesn't get credit enough for is clearing that bridge. Because just think if he would have hit the George Washington Bridge. That's bigger than a terrorist attack on lunch. Because now you're taking out a bridge and people, and now you got the river to deal with. You're looking at a whole different situation. So he, I, I'll tell you, he does not get enough credit for clearing the bridge. He's a humble man, and I've met Captain Sonberger many times, been with him many times. He'll never sort of take that on, but I tell him he, he doesn't get enough credit for that. I mean, absolutely. That that uh, that that was something that didn't even uh, cross my mind, whether watching the movie or recalling the day uh, that it happened, um, or or even recalling the just the actual audio recordings. Which I, it's been a little while since I heard it, but but I do reference it to people who haven't heard it quite a bit. Cause I'm like, you know, it, it it's almost it's almost funny the way that his response was to the to the guy in the the radio tower. It was like, wait, what what did he what did he just say? Like. Matter of fact, that's the way the guy he is. He's just matter of fact. We're going to the river, you know. And and I tell people, what a what a decision making process. In six minutes, he had six minutes to make all these decisions, and how and he narrowed down the decisions. And this is what we're going to do. And you know, at that point, he shut it down, right? And we're focusing in on what we're going to do. So, you know, at that point in time, it's when I started to pray. I was like, you know, at this point, it didn't look good because we were heading towards the river. Because if you know how to, you know, if you know the dynamics. I'm, I've learned a lot since this happened. You know, when he had to bring and glide that thing over over the bridge, yeah, he had to basically you know, lose lose engine power, lose power because he had no engines going, so he lose lost power. So when he had to put his nose back down over to gain speed up again, because the plane has to maintain, a, a, my understanding is what I've learned, 120 miles an hour to stay in the air, and so he was, you know, somewhere at that point. So. When he puts the nose down, he speed back up to 120 to stay up in the air. And when he puts the nose back down, that's when he started uh, quickly heading towards the uh, the Hudson River. Yeah, I, uh, I I believe that's something. That's why they have uh, the giant wings on the cars to, to create downforce. They don't take yeah. off when they go past yeah. 120. Um, but uh, so so once the once it was apparent, do, I mean, did you understand what was going on from the from the seat at the time? That like it look that you guys were going to be in the the water. I mean, because no one thinks about water yeah. like you know if, if water evacuation like that to me was always like, well, that's that's not a thing that would probably happen or a one in a million or, shot, right? One in a million shot. Yeah. And so once he said that, I knew it was serious, and he was going to go into the river because there's no place else to go. I mean, oh, so he, he did. Like, he did announce it. No, he said all, – all the words he says is your captain braced for impact. So oh, no one man. knew what he was doing. But if you could look out the window like I could because I was on the left side of the plane, you saw Hoboken, New Jersey, right? The other side of the plane was looking towards Manhattan. And so he had basically three options when he was going to the river. He had the river, Jersey, or Manhattan. And once again, I you know I, I give him a, a ton of credit for getting that plane down because it, it was about 60, 60 seconds after he crossed over the George Washington it's when he crashed into the river. And he hit it perfectly, which was another amazing thing. I think he does gets enough credit for because like like he's I've heard him talk about I've heard other pilots tell me that you know just think of one degree either way if he just hits that wing a little bit on the water first he's toppling into Manhattan or toppling in to Hoboken. Think of you talk about a major situation, a rush hour in New York or Hoboken, and a plane's go, rolling through the city with people on it. And or if he just puts the nose down a little bit, one more degree, it's going nose down straight down to the Hudson River. So he, now he's going like that one plane that went straight down to the bottom of the Hudson River because he didn't put his nose down, that small plane. So he doesn't get enough credit for getting that plane down either. But once he hit, it was a hard hit, man. I, I don't tell, I'll tell people it was. You know, we had somebody from NASCAR who was sitting on the plane, and she told us she went to a couple of the engineers that she worked with, and sort of they sort of looked at the situation and said it's sort of like hitting the wall at 180 miles an hour. That's how hard a hit it was. So, in Dale Earnhardt, when he passed away, he hit the wall sideways at 200 plus miles an hour. So when he hit, I went all the way back in my seat and all the way up in my seat. Is that much like a whiplash kind of effect? 
But when I came back up and I sort of opened my eyes, like, man, I'm alive. And I look out the window and I saw a light. So I knew I was alive. But, man, all of a sudden, water started filling the plane. And, you know, once again, once because if you saw how the plane hit, if you watched watched the films or, you know, what happened that day, it stripped the bottom of the plane off. And fortunately for me, the plane is here in the Carolinas Aviation Museum here in Charlotte. So I get to speak at it. I do a lot of events at the museum. So you, I get to go underneath and look at the plane. And that's how it's stripped off. So water started coming in from underneath the plane. And then all of a sudden, somebody, Joe, actually listened to the flight attendants and went to that closest exit, which may be behind you, right? They tell you that. You, they got up and start trying to open up that back door, which you don't do when there's in the water because all of a sudden now water's coming in the back of the plane. So now you've got water coming in from the back, coming in from the bottom. So all of a sudden, water was ankle knee to waist deep, depending where you were on that plane. And you know, I was towards the back, so water was ankle, anywhere from about knee to waist deep immediately. So you knew at that point, and now you're looking at 36 degree water too. And you got water running the plane. You're trying to get out of the plane and, and all I tell you stuff is breaking loose, right? Now it's the term I used that evening when I was with on Katie Couric was controlled chaos. Cause you know, no one was losing their heads. No one was beating each other up to get over, uh, get out of the way stuff. None of that. People were very orally, but it was chaotic. People were moving and there was no one standing still saying, What's, what am I supposed to do? People were going. So it was, it was it was controlled chaos at that point. So uh, and one of the things, the other things that I tell people, one of the great stories and lessons about this is the resourcefulness of people in times of a crisis. Because when when we hit, like I mentioned, we hit with a, such a force, some of the seats broke back. And when that happened, all of a sudden you saw people jumping up on top of seats, walking down those seats. So instead of having one avenue out, which was the aisle, now you have multiple avenues out, seats on both sides and the and the down in the middle of the aisle. So you have three pathways out. So I tell people, you know, the great you know, the thing, one of the learning lessons is when you don't think you have any pathways to get something done, all of a sudden pathways open up, but you gotta be, you gotta have your head together, right? You gotta focus in. But I didn't think about getting on top of a seat, man, that didn't cross my mind. My thought came, my, my thought process, Joe, once we hit, I felt water like get to the aisle, get up and get out. It's the first thing I thought about, aisle up out. But when I got to the aisle, something happened. No, it changed my game plan, but probably changed not only that day, but probably the direction I was going to take is I heard my mother start talking in my head as soon as I got to the aisle. And my mother passed away in 1997. But I remember something she would tell me when I was a child it just popped into my head. It was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And to me, the right thing was you help other people first. See, I grew up in an environment of athletics and sports and Boy Scouts where I always was around a bunch of guys, and the guys always had each other's backs. I mean, that's the way I grew up. I grew up in a small town outside of Cincinnati, Ohio, and out in the country, and everybody had each other's backs. So I grew up in that way, and even in Virginia where I grew up. So I went towards the back of the plane to see if anybody needed help because if people were going forward, I was trying to get towards the back, and there was one elderly lady who was having a challenge, and there were two ladies trying to get her up and moving. So I got behind them. And so we got her up and started moving. So now I'm trying to get my way out now because now you know, people, I'm the last person in the back of the plane trying to get out of this thing. And water's now waist chest deep in the back of the plane. That's how deep it was. It, that's the one thing in the movie I don't think it was reflected as, as correctly because the water was about that, that high. So it, when I started making my way out, not only did some of the seats break back, but the bins had now broken open. So when that happened and on impact, luggage flew out. You're waist deep in the water. Luggage is floating in the water. It's dark in the back of the plane because now you're looking at, you know, you're in the river. It's late afternoon in New York in the middle of the winter, right? And it's overcast, right? So it's a little dark in the back. So you couldn't see anything. So every time I took a step to get out, I ran into something. And at that point, I wasn't going to hang around and say, well, what was it, right? Was it a piece of luggage or somebody's body? So all the further I could get up was 10F, the door on the right, the exit door on the right. So when I saw that opening, I was like, okay, get out. But when I got there, I started getting out of the plane. But I looked up, I looked out, and there was it was an amazing sight. There was no room on the wing or the boat for me. There's no room. It was already filled. But it was an amazing sight. People at that point were already being rescued. And, you know, I had to tell people, I said, I don't know who said this on TV, but I give them 100% of the credit. I give them all, all the credit when they said it. Skiles and Sullenberger got everybody out that day, and the crew and passengers got everybody, everybody out. But the real heroes were the first responders and the first responders were, were the first one was the ferries, New York waterways. People were being rescued, but I couldn't get out. So that's why I was inside the plane 
waist deep in 36 degree water, hold on to the lifeboat because another part of this that doesn't get talked about a lot is that little lifeboat that comes out, pops out right in the side that people were filled in. It was floating out into the river. And they, like I, who reads the instructions? We just talked about it. No one reads the instructions. You think you know everything, right? It's actually tethered to the plane. But no one knew that. So as it's floating out, they kept yelling at me, hold on, hold on, because they didn't want to be close to the wing. So I, there's a picture of me on Good Morning America. I first saw it. I was like blown away. I'm here on Good Morning America. My picture shows up. And I'm holding on to the lifeboat with all these people hanging out of the plane waist deep in the water. And I show people this picture. I'm like, yeah, it's – yeah." Nothing is as clean as it sort of seems. Like yeah, everybody gets on the wing and goes home and everybody's happy. Eh, things don't happen that way. You know, it's uh, you got a lot of things. So that's why I was inside the plane for about seven minutes, waist deep in 36 degree water, holding on to this uh, little lifeboat, hanging out. And that's how I became the last passenger out of the plane. Wow. <laughs> all, all because you went back to help somebody. Yep. That's why I think my destiny changed at that moment when I heard my mother talk. Because, uh, you know, my game plan was just get out of the plane, right? I mean, that's what you're supposed to do. Just get out of the plane. And there were a lot of people doing that. Um, but that's not what I did. And, you know, my everything's changed for me at that point. You know, when you uh, when you were, were like in that water, was there did it occur to you that like that could be really dangerous? Not like even just outside of the plane, like once you've gotten outside the plane, like. I mean, because it's like you're still not you're, like you're on the Titanic at that point. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, what, what happened to me was, I was, was all this was breaking loose. Right. And there were things happening all over the place. But about six, seven minutes into this thing, one of the one of the boats that came to rescue people got beeped out by another boat that was coming in because his game plan. He was a tugboat captain. And I got a chance to talk to him and hear what happened on his end. And he, he they put an all call out. All boats go. So he brought his tugboat out, and he said his initial game plan was he was going to try to get as close to that right wing, throw a rope to the lifeboat, have him tie it on. He was going to pull that, pull that little lifeboat over to his tugboat and load people on the tugboat, get him out. Great plan. What he wasn't planning on is people standing on a wing, so he couldn't pull the boat across. So that's what's going on. The ferries were coming in, right? You see all the you see the picture, all the ferries started coming in. Well, he got beeped out. Time for you to go. Ferry's coming in. Get out of here, right? So as he was backing his his tugboat out, he hit the front of the plane. Now I tell people, well, that's not that big of a deal unless you're in the plane. And I was in the plane, and we're six, seven minutes in the thing. I'm waist deep in the water. When he hit it, it shook the plane. When it shook the plane, I felt water going on my back. And like you just said, the first thing I thought about was Titanic. Like, man, this thing's going down. And I, I remember that movie Titanic. When that boat chipped up, it sucked everything down in it. To the bottom of the, of, the, of the ocean, I was like, man, do not be stuck in a plane. You know, you're this close to getting out of here, man. <laughs> Get out of the plane. So that's when I think I told I think my mom and dad, because if I had sw gotten swimming lessons when I was a child, I may never be able to get out of this plane. So that's why I'm always like, I'm out of here. I can't do anything more. So I jumped in and swam. And so the, the moment, the question you just asked, that was the moment I first had probably thought, I may not make this. Because here I'm swimming in 36 degree water, not only 36 degree water, but now there's jet fuel in the water. And I'm got I have jet fuel in my eyes, and that's one of the reasons I wear glasses now. It's because I got jet fuel in all my eyes, and they didn't get it all out when they cleaned my eyes at the hospital. You know, they got I still got some specks in the eyes. So, but that was the first moment I thought, man, I may not make it. But I'm a good swimmer, and I swam with my clothes on after being in 36 degree water all the way to the end of that wing to the ferries. And that's how I got to the ferry. But I'm still not out. Because now I'm getting to, you know, the ferry I went to, Joe, and have you ever been on the New York waterways or saw the movie? You know, the, the ferries in the movie they show are, have the plastic ladders they put down from the side. See, they don't have elevators to take you out of the water. They don't get paid to rescue people, right? They're, they're, the way they make money is take people back and forth from Jersey to New York. That's how they get paid. Well, mine had a orange plastic ladder, and when I got there, they're yelling to climb, and I'm, you know, I can't. I mean, I mean, how am I going to get up on this thing, man? I can barely, I can barely breathe. But then someone, two guys reached down and picked me up and grabbed me and threw me on the ferry. That's how I got onto the ferry. And that was the moment when people say, you know, you think you made it? It's like, man, I made it. I survived a plane crash. But it wasn't because that's the moment when all the adrenaline left. And if you talk to firemen, I do a lot of talks with firemen and police right now. But firemen will tell you this. You see the picture of these firemen, man. These guys are great because they're charging into the fire, right? And the next thing you see of a fireman out of the fire, they're sitting on the curb with their equipment on. And they're exhausted. They have nothing left, man. They've given it all. And that's how I felt. I was like, 
I had nothing left because I can't explain how cold 36 degree water is. I mean, it just like zaps everything out of you. And I couldn't breathe. I, I mean, I was like, I didn't make it. I'm like, I'm not going to make this. Down. I'm going to die on the ferry because I'm so cold, right? And unfortunately for me, there was a guy with an iPhone who brought it up and put it in my face and call your wife. And, you know, fortunately for me, he dialed the phone for me. That's how I got the message out that uh, I was in a plane crash. And that's the first moment my family knew that something happened. So what what happened next? You, you got back to land um, and you they take you to the hospital, I hope? <laughs> oh, well, they took me to Jersey because I went out to the right side and the right Right side of you, in the, and they actually really depicted it really well in the movie. The right side of the plane was facing towards New Jersey. The left side of the plane was facing towards Manhattan. So since I went at the right, closest point was Weehawken, right there in the, in the Bergen County area, right? That's where I went. So when I, they got me up, they took me to a triage center, put me on the floor, stripped all my clothes off because they get the wet clothes off me. So I'm on the floor, basically my underwear, pretty much naked. I sit on the floor. I look over at one side, there's a guy sort of like me, another girl on this side, on the right side, there's a girl with no underwear on. But I tell people it's amazing when you're four naked, all of a sudden with two people, everybody's looking, but ain't nobody talking. It's a very weird feeling. It's like, you know, all of a sudden I'm naked with two people on the floor. I didn't know what's going on. And they took my blood pressure and it was 190 over 120. And she told me, you got to go stat. And I tell people, you hear that word? Something's going on. She goes, you got to go stat. You got a heart attack or stroke. I'm like, I'm not going to make it. You know, I'm not going to make it again. So that's when they took me to the hospital over Palisades, over over in Weehawken in North Bergen. Um, and fortunately for me, I had a lot of people in Jersey get a bad rap because there's a lot of people in New Jersey to take care of you. I mean, they get a bad rap because there's about 10 women picked me up and carried me to a bed where a doctor was. And that's when it was go time for me. And that's when they started diagnosing me. And I had hypothermia. My blood, my, my temperature, my body was 94. And that's why I stayed the night in the hospital with one other gentleman who who fractured his sternum, who was the first passenger out. And if you saw the movies, the guy who jumped out the right side of the plane and, and you know fell flat in the water, he fractured his sternum from the impact. So that we were, that's why we were the two guys who stayed the night in the hospital where everybody else was going home. And that's why it took him a few hours. If you saw the movie where they kept asking, you know, kept saying, I need a number, I need a number. Well, they couldn't get a number because everybody was going home. We're going back to their homes in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut. And we were in the hospital, and they could find us. And it took them a little while to find us. That's how. That's why it took them a few hours until the, the governor of New York came out and said, "This is truly a miracle on the Hudson," because they they couldn't find everybody. Hmm. Now, um, how how long did it take before you finally were able to get home, or did your family did you end up staying there and your family came up, or what happened? U.S. Airways offered to fly my wife up, uh, but. Over, you know, overnight, I had my, see, each one of us got our own liaison, our own person from U.S. Airways, from an emergency response team. Mine came from Pittsburgh. Her name was Doreen. And she basically overnight was starting to take care of me because it was, it was hectic, right? I mean, people were trying to get to me. They were trying to warm me up. She was trying to take care of business for me, right? So all night long, we were up. I did these TV shows, the early, the early show and Good Morning America and Fox and Friends the next morning. And, and then I feel pretty good now. Like, I just want to go home. And my U.S. Airways made arrangements to, for my wife and family to be back at the airport here where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, to meet me. So uh, but I wanted to go. I was like, let's go. And all of a sudden, Doreen, my, my U.S. Airways uh, liaison, said, yeah, I can't, I can't get you there until 12 o'clock. leaves at 12 o'clock. I said, I want to go home now. You know, I mean, get me out of here, right? And she, uh, she said, I can't do it. But fortunately for me, the night before, I met so many dignitaries like the governor of New Jersey and – the New York State Police, New Jersey State Police, FBI, Homeland Security, and the director of Port Authority, they all left their cards and said, call me if you need anything. And I'm a kind of guy is, you know, I'll cash in, man. You, you give me that give me that opening, right? I'll cash in. And I told her to call this guy and who it was was the director of Port Authority. And she called, looked at me like, looked at me like, you want me to call the director of Port? I said, call him. He said he'd help me if I needed help. So she went outside the door and called the director of Port Authority, and six minutes later, I had a police escort. They take me from Weehawken, New Jersey, to LaGuardia in 16 minutes in a pimped-out Escalade, me and my sweats that they put on me. I tell people, that's a miracle, man. If you ever have a chance to do a police escort through Manhattan, take it. There ain't nothing like it, because it, it took me about three months ago, two and a half hours, to get from New Jersey to LaGuardia. But that was the coolest thing that happened the entire time. But that's how I got back, because uh, yeah, fortunately for me, you know, I, the, guy, the guy left a card. And I used it. Yeah. I tell these kids when I talk to these youth, you never throw away a card. 
you never know when that person may be able to help you, man. So I've got car, I've got thousands of cars sitting over here right now. If I need something, I'll pull it out. You know, don't ever be afraid to use it. Yeah, I, I have like stacks and stacks of cards behind one of these album covers on on my life. Yeah. I mean, you can't see that when you're hearing it, but but Dave can certainly see uh, the the rack there. Um. So okay. So so I guess my question would be. Yeah. And, and I and I I'm glad you said I I'm one to cash in on it. Like, how did it go about? Like, how did how did um ABC and and all the like all the news networks. Did they know at that point that you you were the last person off the plane? Because that's a pretty big distinction, right? Like that, you know, it's either the first or the or the last. But in this yeah. case, the last yeah. makes more. You know, it, it makes a lot. Well, more what sense. was interesting. So here's here's the backstory of the backstory. So, um, what happened when I got to the hospital and they were starting to work on me, right? I mean, they were just going after me because that's what they do. Because I'm cold, and somebody from the Associated Press put their their camera inside the curtain where they, and took my picture. And so my picture got around the world just like that, right? And so they started finding out who I was and where I was at. So when I was doing – see, the, the first passenger who was out was the guy who jumped in the water. So they had the first and last passenger together in beds next to each other, all right? So we were getting inundated. So, well, we agreed, but we were, like, talking over you know, between the screens, right? You know, ABC wanted one of us. CBS wanted one of us. So he said, I'll take ABC. I said, I'll take CBS. So he had Diane Sawyer. I had Katie Couric. All right. And that's how, you know, that's how the media found out where we were at. So all night long, I kept getting calls from other media establishments around the world. So that's what happened was, and I was telling basically what happened. And, and she said, you were the last passenger off the plane. I'm like, I didn't know that. Right. And, and didn't know that because I just didn't know what was going on until two weeks later when I was on Good Morning America with Diane Sawyer and Robin Roberts. They showed my picture being the last person off the last passenger off the plane. Captain Sullenberg was the last person off the plane. I was the last passenger off the plane. Okay, okay, yeah. I was gonna say I, I thought that that would make more sense. Yep, more sense. Yep. Uh, uh, he's the last person off the plane. I was, the I was the last passenger the off the. Yep. I'm glad I didn't go down with the ship. <laughs> That's. Uh... No, you know, unlike uh, what happened in that uh, ferry, that uh, that, cru- that cruise line over in Italy, that Concordia, right, when the captain was the first guy off the boat, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's that. It was it was totally opposite, right? I mean, I you, know, you don't want to still there, first isn't it? <laughs> it's still <laughs> down the water, man. So uh, he gets Captain Sonberg gets all the credit. He was the last last person off that plane. Wow! 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 Um. So okay, so let's let's move forward to like yep. how did you decide that this was going? I mean, well, having a background with Tony Robbins probably helped make that decision for you a bit like clearer, right? Having like, hey, I, I I know this guy, I did this thing for him as far as security, I get it, right? Like, I see that path. How did you decide that that path was going to be for you? Well, it wasn't my game plan initially because I had I had a good job, I was making a lot of money, right? Um, and it wasn't my game plan, but the, the, the backstory, once again, of the backstory is the only person that called me in the hospital that night was Tony Robbins. My, my company didn't even call me. They didn't check in on me, but Tony Robbins did. And, you know, so Tony and I had a very close relationship to say that, but he, he, here's the backstory of the backstory. So every time that I would meet him at an event, as I was the head of security and, you know, pick him up at the helipad or the airport, doing whatever I was going to do he'd ask me the same question every time he's still working for that company when are you going to work for yourself right and he and i tell people after so many times you can't lie too much right it's like yeah i can't come up with so many excuses because he can call it out pretty quick right so when we when i was actually out in los angeles doing these tv shows he was in he was at home and he asked me to call he said i'll give you some pointers on what to look for when you're doing these tv shows i had no experience right he has, a, he has thousands of times experience. So but he was saying, this is your time. He kept saying, this is your time. If you're going to do it, you have you have the opportunity now. And so I was still working. I was still doing head security until he, we were in Chicago about a year and a half later. And he pulled me into his room. He said, listen, I want to find another director of security because this is your time. You've got to do this. If you don't do this now, you'll never do it. So he, he sort of gave me the kick in the backside to say, okay, get get over your fears, right? Get the confidence. You you know what you're doing. You've been around this. Do it. So, but I still had a wife to deal with because my wife my wife thrives on certainty. 
you know, and that's why I didn't realize until this moment. My wife, you know, she didn't want any variety. She had enough variety going on. She wanted certainty. So I had to give her enough certainty that I could pull this thing off. So it took me another few months to figure that out. And that's when I made the move to uh, starting my own company and leaving the corporate world, which is a big move. A lot of people come to me, how did you do that? I mean, you're making comfortable money, right? But uh, you're never really free until you're still working for yourself, you know, and doing your own thing. You're always working for the man. And I realized that, you know, my company really didn't care about me. I was just a number. They would have put somebody else in that seat that next day to go to the, to the next trip, you know, via, via checked out. So I had to sort of get to get over some of the fear and say, you know what, I can pull this thing off and I'm going to make some mistakes. But I had to have my wife's blessing and it took a little while to get that. You know, and I, I can imagine that that would, I mean, uh, having that blanket, I mean, working for Oracle is a, a you know, a different piece. That's like saying I work, you know, IBM, Microsoft, yep. blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's, you know, having that, um, cause it's a machine, right. And, and yep. part of that isn't necessarily just because the, the fact that, um, you're a number and, and, and you could be replaced, but part of it is like, they need to replace you because, there's you know, a number thou thousands yep. of other employees that are counting on that position to play its part in the on the team. That's so, right. So it's it's a it's a you know it's a balance of like yeah you are working for the man but technically you're working for everybody because if you don't do your part somebody else can't right. do their part and and all that. But with that said, um, so what were like some of the first steps you took to get started once you were like okay I'm I'm doing this full time because at that point you were still doing interviews and talks. I still I was talking. I was doing, I still do, I still to this day, you know, almost nine years later, still do a ton of interviews. So how it really started is I was doing some speaking and I, I, I took the Zig Ziglar approach. I, uh, you know, I love personal development and that was sort of how I got everything going in my business life. And Zig Ziglar's approach was for the first hundred uh, times he spoke, he didn't take a dime. He just sort of practiced and perfected his techniques. I said, okay, he did pretty well. Why don't I do the same thing, right? So I did a lot of talks for free just sort of getting everything down. So when I made this shift, the one thing I knew how to do was drive revenue. I was a sales guy, right? I can drive revenue. What I did do really well was the administrative part, right? What you got to do as part of building a business. So I tell people when I, you know, who want to do something like I've done, I say, man, you got to get your ducks in a row first because I took a bath. Um, because I wasn't, I wasn't had, had the mechanisms in place, the processes in place to collect the money to pay, pay for things and all that stuff. So I was making a ton of money, but I wasn't getting it because people were holding back on me, right? I didn't have agreements. I took people's words for things, right? Because I was a good guy. So I had to get processes in place. So that's, that, that's the biggest pain part that I had and the learning learning curve that I had. Mm, that that uh, you just softballed it into the to, to my upcoming book, uh, Sales Won't Save Your Business. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh, so thank yeah, you, you for that. You can sell, you can sell, you, you can sell yourself out a lot of things. Revenue makes a lot of people happy, but you learn, right? There's no. there's other parts of things that have to happen to make it happen. And if your processes are, are, are uh, I'm sorry, if your sales are, are not profitable because your processes aren't profitable and predictable, then uh, you're, you're losing money on every sale you make anyway. So it's still a sinking yep. ship regardless. Exactly right. Um, yep. So you kind of already alluded to it, but how, how did your family take it? Let's say once you made that that switch, once you were able to finally get over the, the hump of like, I'm going to do this and let's make it happen. Well, the biggest hurt, like I said, the biggest hurdle is giving my wife certainty. And one thing she had to have a lot of certainty about was health insurance and all the, those benefits that, you know, you get with, with a company like an Oracle that just come naturally, right? I mean, you pay for them, you got them, so you don't have to worry about them. Well, I had to put that in place, which all of a sudden you realize are very costly, right? So I had to, had to get over through all those kinds of hurdles as I was trying to build a business, as I was still speaking, as I was still doing media stuff. That I had uh, agreed to do. So, and I was trying to get things in place. But the, one of the smartest things I did originally was get a PA, a personal assistant. And she took some of the load off, but I had to pay her, right? So she took a lot of the load off of a lot of those things uh, to get the scheduling and stuff done. But I still had to get all the other administrative things done to make sure my wife and family were supported. And uh, I told my wife, and I promised my wife when I made this move, and she gave me permission. It's like, your lifestyle won't go backwards. I'll guarantee that. My lifestyle might, and it has. I mean, we don't take vacations like we used to, right? We don't do all the big trips like that, right? Because you're building a business. You put everything back into the business, right? But I told her her lifestyle wasn't, and it hasn't to this day. It hasn't changed. 
She still gets everything she needs. Everything's taken care of. So she has the certainty. But I'm, yeah, I'm the one who basically is cutting back and doing things just to get get these things going. So, um, you know, like any entrepreneur, right? You got to go through some pain to get to the pleasure. You have to. There's no way around it. And, uh, you know, you think and people look at me, it's like, how do you do it so fast? I'm like, hey, listen, I'm not making the money I was making at Oracle just yet. Right. I mean, I was making a ton of money. Right. So money was never the issue, but it was time and everything else because you have to sacrifice something. Right. So now my time, I still I spend now what I tell me the biggest change and flip that I made on this whole thing was I prioritized my family's time first before my time. Where before it was just the opposite. It was my time first, and then I'll get to the family stuff if I can. And so all of a sudden, I got two kids in high school and one's going to college, and I missed out on so many things because it was all about trying to get my stuff done. Because my model of the world, Joe, and I grew up with, you know, I grew up in the 60s. My dad, that was his model of the world. Dads go out, make the money. Mother stays home, takes care of the business right at home, right? And I'll take care of this, but you got to take care of your part. Well, that was my model out of the world because I was doing the same thing, right? I was making a ton of money. We, we had things, but what, what my dad was never around for time. He's never there. He missed a lot of things, right? And so I was missing a lot of things. So I said, that's the biggest flip that I made is, man, you realize when you're going down a plane crash and you may be dying and you may not be coming back, you don't regret all that money. You regret that I didn't spend more time. So now time is the first thing we do. And, um, you know, if if we would have been talking today and my, my kids had something to do today, which they're older now, so they don't have something to do right now, you know, we will be talking right now. We'd be doing delaying this. But you take this back eight years, this would have come first. And, and kids, you have to wait. I'm doing this with Joe first. That's not the way to run it. And that's that's why all of a sudden your life becomes more fulfilled. Right. When you start focusing on what's really important in your life. No, I, I, absolutely. And I mean, I, I had to make the same decision when I left my family's business. So it's, uh, it, it, it is, it is a challenge and, but that's part of owning a business, right? It's all about challenges and being a professional problem solver. And you know, it, it's not going to be easy. And if it's easy, everyone would do it. So you would have done right. it sooner. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, I would have done I had it sooner opportunities too. <laughs> to do it. I had a lot of opportunities, but you know what? I had fear because we were comfortable, right? So, oh. You know, and I think part of that goes back to like, you know, growing up as as, as a child and, and, and thinking about the things that we did or didn't have and wanting more for, for our kids. But but I think it's things that we take, you know, we wind up taking for granted, like the time that we spend, you know, that one vacation that you take in the summer, like during the summer. Yeah. And that's the one vacation for the whole year. That's the one time you spend and really see uh, right. quality time there with, with your family. So it's... Um, so it's ironic that we have to, uh, balance building a business at the same time as, uh, doing that. But, but the goal is, is there, right? The goal is to be able to spend more time, uh, and some of we have to make sacrifices in the, in the short term rather than the, you know, I worked here for 40 years and I got my pension, but now everybody's grown up and I may or may not have my health 40 years from now. And who right. know, you know, who knows uh, what we're on. My relationships have gone to pot, right? Yeah. But I've got a lot of money. I've got a lot of money. I've got my gold watch. So I'm, you know, yeah. Is that, that model of the world's changed, right? That model of the world's uh, no longer around. I, I think so. By and large, I, I think it has. Um, speaking of spending time though, uh, when you do get time to spend for yourself, what, what's your hobby? Well, I haven't done it in a long time. I used to play golf a lot. Of course, being an Oracle and I would be taking people out to play golf a lot and doing stuff like that. But you know, I'd be going to personal development. Stuff. So when I have time free, that's pretty much what I do is I go to personal development uh, events. You know, I whether it's a Tony Robbins or a Brendan Bruchard or something like that, because I, you know, one of the things I'm doing right now is making my 2018 personal development goals. Right. Because I think unless you're, you're working on yourself, you're you're, you're not improving. So. You know, I need to find a hobby. You can be very candid because candidly, I, I do this pretty much because I'm in my it's my business, right? It's my baby, like you know, it's your baby. So, uh, but I'll probably get back to playing a little bit of golf and doing some things. I you know, I travel so much. The candidly, travel is not 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 important much anymore. It used to be really fun, but uh, there are still a few places I love to take my wife and uh, do a little traveling. But I told her once our son's in college. We're going to rent an RV and you and I are going to go around this country. We're going to do everything we talked about, right? And we're going to leave. I'm just going to live live out of an RV for a couple of weeks, you know, and have some fun. So, uh, 
But no, I think right now, if I could play some golf, I'd sort of release me a little bit and get my mind a little bit more open. <laughs> well, I think where you're at is probably still warm enough to go and do that uh, from, you know, from time to yep. time uh, up here. Right now, I think it's like 17 degrees outside. So hey, it's 25 here today. So it's a little cold down here, too. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was it was it was seventy this time last week though, so I was in shorts and a t-shirt last week. So it was know. like I think it was like fifty up here, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. Um. So what's been the biggest roadblock for you, uh, since starting your own business? I think the, the probably the biggest roadblock that I have is I didn't get the proper resources around me. You know, I I had great people around me, but they some of them were not focused in on my mission and I, so i said the biggest roadblock i had is is acquiring the the, the appropriate talent to be around me because one thing i talked to with tony about i was always i was with tony all the time and i saw him churning through people right and i and i and just it's a company right I, but i was thinking that one of the reasons probably churning because a lot of the people he brought on weren't tied to his mission and the people who are not aligned with your mission are not going to help you grow and, and advance it. So I say the biggest roadblock that I've had, and I'm getting better at this, a better team around me to understand my mission and where we're going to go with this thing and how we're going to do this thing, which has made it a lot easier. But I'll tell you that I had that roadblock for a few years in Canley. It was suffering, trying to do what you're supposed to do and support a family and not have the, the right people. I'm not, they're not good people. They're just not the appropriate people in the appropriate position. So I got to tell people, you got to get the right, right people in the right seats on the plane or nothing can go down pretty quick. No, I, I mean, having the right people, having the right people that are, that are focused on it. I know um, the, one of my team members, uh, she's super, super hyper, like focused on helping, you know, the mission of what we're, what we're doing here in my business. So I, I think, um, I think that that means a lot because if you don't, right, then they're not as invested. And if they're not invested, um, it, you're just not going to get the results that you're looking for and, and going to be happy with. And or even getting to the point where you um, can look pa past some of their, <coughs> excuse me, some of their, their shortcomings, right? Yep. You know, having and somebody who's dedicated, but but maybe they don't do the certain things the, the way you would like it or or something to that effect. Like it's easier to look past that when you know that they're they're loyal to the mission of what you're trying to accomplish. Well, you know, that's a great, great point. Two things I say to that. Number one is I, I would harken back to my time when I had the opportunity to be with General Norman Schwarzkopf and how he I was with him and had a chance to talk to him and understand his mentality about leadership. And part of it was you set the mission and you step back. Let people who do the job the best do the job. It's course correct if you have to, but keep reminding people the mission. So now I sort of walked my talk a little bit on that. So now people, you know, I let people do how get get the job done, get the outcome right. I'm not as judgmental on how you do it now. But the second thing that I've done, and I, I've I've always believed in, but I started implementing because at first I didn't implement it, and it was hurting me. Was I made every job and every person who's with me have an incentive. So, you know, they may not get paid. Some people want, when I first started, people just want a flat fee, right? I want this much to do this. And I was doing it because I needed the outcome, right? But I but that was fulfilling what they want instead of what I wanted. So what I do now is if you work with me and I got, I'm working with one person like right now, I'll give her X number of dollars, but you're going to get an upside of everything that we do together. So you got, you got, you're, you're driven to my mission too. So everybody who works around me has that, has an incentive like that which has changed everything in the way we approach business because everybody now has a little piece of the pie, right? And if they help me grow and do what we're supposed to do, they're going to get a little bit of the pie. And one person's making probably made close to $25,000, $26,000 extra this year by doing that. So, you know, awesome. they benefited. Yeah. So that's, that's now a sort of a mandate that I have when you go work with me that, you know, you're, you're not going to get paid the top dollar, but I'll give you a fair wage and an incentive. So if you do your job, you can make a ton more money. Because I was in sales. I was on commission. You know, I can make as much. I, people would always ask me, Joe, when I, I interview for a job, and they asked me to come over. I said, now, how much money do you need? I said, just give me, cover my basic needs and let me, I can, just give me a commission so I can make as much as I want. Don't cap my commissions. At one time I got stuck with a company that capped my commissions and it really upset me because I didn't think about it until then. So I like, these guys are capping my commission. I can only make two hundred twenty thousand dollars, you know. And I could. It doesn't matter. I put a effort in for a half a million. So what are you going to do, right? You're going to gear it back down to make make your max and gear it back. So from that point on, I I never worked for a company that capped my commissions.
and that's changed. That's when I started making a lot more money. And sometimes, and sometimes my managers, like you said, had to gear it back on them because I'm pretty creative. I was doing some things outside the box. We're getting some, you know, getting results, right? Which they may not lined up with their model of the world, but also I was getting results that no one else was getting because I was working outside the box because I had access to people like Tony Robbins and other people. So I was, I was getting coached on this. And I was like, hey, you got to think about this thing a different way. You know, yeah, this is, this is the corporate way to do things, right? We do this, 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 and this, and you'll get this. Yeah, it's not the way of the world. These guys who who have got it, these entrepreneurs who have made it, didn't do it by doing A, B, C, D equals E. They did E, B, C, oh, Y. By the way, I get F, right? So that the model of the world, that's why I have everybody have an incentive because it changes everything. Speaking of that, uh, speaking of Tony Robbins, how, how did you wind up with him uh, being the head of a security team? Well, it, it wasn't immediately I was head of security. So the, the story of that, that is I was I attended a couple of his events and all of a sudden, you know, I, I got started getting results because I actually did something that most people don't do. I actually did what he teaches. Right. I, you know, I, I, actually, I actually read it and did it. So I lost in one year, I lost 25 pounds. I was a top sales guy at a, one of the biggest data processing companies in the world. Top sales guy that year. So I lost 25 pounds. Right. I ran a marathon, the whole thing. Right. I'm like, well, if I could do that by just going to a couple of events, let's think if I could do if I could do more. So I started volunteering at his events. So I was the guy, like, and what happened was we were in Maui at one of his events, and I was the guy, the volunteer was the guy at midnight putting brochures on the seats, the thousand seats, right? While everybody's in bed, I'm out putting brochures down, right? But what happened was his wife was in the in the venue, and she sort of got cornered or approached or whatever the terminology you want to take by a couple couple men. And, you know, I'm sure there was no malintent, but she wanted to get out. So I basically told her, I said, your husband's looking for you, ma'am. So as I was walking her back, she said, you handled pretty well. Would you like to be on security? And I said, that's a heck of a lot better than putting brochures down, man. She goes, come, come in tomorrow. I'm going to put you to sit in the back door. And I just sit in the back door of his green room for four days. I didn't move, man. But I, I observed everything that was going on, right? I was watching how things were moving. So all of a sudden, I got trust with him. So he said, why don't you sit on, on one side of the stage and have my back? Sort of like the left, left tackle in football, right? You got the quarterback's back. So I, I basically had his back on the stage. So look at his. So I for observing. He said, oh, by the way, now I want you to go on the other side of the stage where I have a face. So now you can communicate with me and tell me what's going on. And all of a sudden, I was the assistant head of security, which means I was managing the stage and people, but not him. And then I had the opportunity to say, he said, would you like to be my director of security? And for five, four, four and a half, five years, I did that, but basically managing him and the team. So it was it was a gradual process, right? He had to build trust in me. Because one of the things that he taught me is, you know, is loyalty and trust. You know, that was, you know, that those two skills plus a skill of anticipation is one of the things he really taught me. What he values at that level. So I did it and I learned how to do it. And that's why I value in people now is loyalty, trust, and anticipation, right? If you can do those three things for me, you can be around me now, right? You can I think the important there is 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 that you you were willing to volunteer. Now my question is is how did you handle the director position and working at you were you working at Oracle at the same time? I was. It was that was so I was juggling a lot of balls. So we go back to the model of the world. My dad, I was in there making money, right? Because I was making a lot of money. But what happened was is you know I would either take vacation or I'd be on the weekends because it's like some of his events were on UPWs were on Friday, Saturday, Sundays, right? So I I cut out on a Thursday night, take a one day off and do the weekend and fly back on a Sunday night, which was not ideal because now I've missed a whole week with my family. Now I'm going to travel the whole next week with Oracle, but I was living my mission, right? I was getting, I was getting the juice, but I wasn't serving my family. So, you know, I had, you have to pay somebody, right? You got to pay up someplace. At that point I was paying up with uh, time with my family, but that's how I was doing it. And I would take vacation and, or do weekends. And, uh, Working around that, and there were occasionally times when it was tough, I, and I I was flying a lot of red eyes, you know, overnights because my company still I was I I couldn't go back on my company because I had a job. So if I had to be like in Dallas, Texas, and I was with him in Portland, Oregon, I had to figure out how to get to Dallas, right? And so what's that gonna mean? I'm just gonna I'll go straight to Dallas, no problem there. But now I'm not going home to see my family. You have to pay up, right? Yep. You have to you have to pay. Pay the bill. It comes due. 
and it came due for me on January fifteenth when I realized that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's always, it's time or money. You gotta you gotta spend yep. one of those two resources to to make it happen. Um, and sometimes there's a headache tax too. <laughs> you yep. can spend the money, you can spend the time, and you still got the to pay the headache tax after the fact. <laughs> yep, exactly right. Now, Dave, what was your childhood dream growing up? I actually uh, talked about this, and I've actually wrote wrote a blog about this. My childhood dream was to be an astronaut. I mean, back in the 60s, right, the coolest thing could be is either a baseball player or an astronaut. And seeing those guys go up, and I just wrote a blog about this, about John Glenn, because he passed away a few months ago, right? And about, I got to meet him when I was in junior high school, right? Here's a senator who was the first guy to orbit the Earth. And I'm, excuse me, I'm having a one-on-one with him, right? So my goal, my was a kid, I just want to be an astronaut. And unfortunately, I didn't know you need to know a lot of science, a lot of math, a lot of engineering behind it, right? They don't tell you that. But uh, it was a cool thing to do. So that's that was my aspiration, man, until all of a sudden, you know, the Apollo stuff ended and they were doing Skylab stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to do Skylab. I want to go to the moon, right? So uh, now I'm a little bit too old for it, right? And, and I think a little older, I can't get it accomplished. There's so many great people doing it now. But uh, that was my aspiration, man, to be an astronaut. Well, I mean, you still did get to travel uh, a whole lot. And, uh, I go up in the air a lot. I'm up in the air a whole lot. Yeah. I'm just not breaking that suborbital just yet, right? Maybe it's time for you to look to get your uh, pilot's license there. Well, we're, uh, that's one of the goals we have right now. Once we get some things in place, I have a friend who uh, who was with me on the security team at Tony Robbins. His name's Mike Milio. Um, and Mike uh, started out with very minor means and all of a sudden made his decision, became an entrepreneur, and got his own plane now. And, uh, you know, I'm really, I, I think, so he's, he's sort of one of my role models. It's like this guy started nothing with like, and also he was on the security team with me. And now he's got his own plane and he's jetting around the world on his own plane. <laughs> yes. That is, that is one of my aspirations. So speaking of aspirations and future aspirations, what do your dreams for the future look like? Well, this is going to be a big year for me and because, uh, you know, some things that are coming out, uh, some development of some new coursework we're doing, some new content we're doing. My new, you know, my new daily briefing is going live here next week, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But, you know, you know, I, I definitely want to, I would, I want to get my private license, but I also want, I have my own plane. I mean, that's sort of thing. But I just want to get my kids through college. I mean, right now I still got one and a half to go. Right, I've got two out, one and a half to go. And I think at that point in time, I've, I've we've accomplished what I've, one of the major things in life. Right, you got your kids out, and they're out doing successful and gainfully employed so you know after that i just like i said one of the big aspirations i have is to travel with my wife in an rv just going around the country you know visiting every state going to alaska and all these things that we've always talked about right and that's one of my big aspirations spend time with my wife because what suffered as we talked about is time you know you got to build that relationship back right so i've been very fortunate to have a very supportive wife and i've got that relationship but now it's time for us to spend some time together instead of doing everything we do still do for the kids yeah, no, I, I was just starting that journey myself. Yeah. So it's, yeah. uh, but I, I think that the, the the time thing. I mean, if you can get past that, all that 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 lack of time, and and figure out, um, you know, what's going to work for you. Because I mean, in the time that's passed, I mean, both of you have changed. Well, I mean, you have changed quite a bit, bit yep. since since having kids. Uh, you know, all those years ago. So, um. You know, getting to rediscover each other, uh, yep. I'm sure will be very nice. We're getting there. We're making progress. We're down to one and a half kids left, right? One's in college and one's in high school, and two are out. So, but it's uh, it's amazing because we all grow. We've grown. We grew apart for a long time, right? Now we're sort of growing back together because now we're sort of seeing the common mission again. But uh, yeah, every I think every marriage goes through this, Joe. Right? It's like you know, pixie dust and sunshine, you love and kisses and everything, and all of a sudden things start going sideways when you have kids because everybody's got different things they got to get done. But then it starts coming back in together, right? That's the circle of life, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, Dave, tell me a little bit about your your upcoming uh, venture into uh, doing your, you said, your daily notes? Oh, yeah. So I, uh, I was fortunate as part of one of the things I've really believed in and, and I've, I've, I've still do is I have my own, I have, I'm a part of a mastermind group because I think sharing it, sharing with people with so different backgrounds opens up your mind. So what was something that was presented to me was uh, with the new technology of Alexa and the echo, right? Is the Alexa daily flash briefings. And so 
I was listening to this and all of a sudden I get an email and I didn't watch this thing from Gary Vanderchuk, right? I'm like, okay, this guy's this guy's making it. So, you know, one of the things I learned from Tony, which is true, model those you've got an outcome you want and you'll get the same outcome. As you, you do exactly, right? So modeling leads to that. Success leads clues. So I got this, I watched them, I'm like, well, that's pretty cool, but how do you do it? So fortunately for me, I I, I was selected to do one. And starting uh, very shortly, that uh, every day if you have an Alexa product, you'll hear Dave's, Dave Sanderson declassified in a five-minute daily flash briefing of some of the different kinds of content. And I'll be bringing some people like, you know, you'll get people like Dominique Wilkins, who I'm doing a project with down in Atlanta, who's going to be on with me. You're going to hear some, some of the big names we talked about who are going to be doing five minutes with me on these daily flash briefings. So it's a very cool technology. And what I've learned is the next wave of technology is going to be voice activation. You know, with Siri was like the first thing, right? Now it's like this Alexa daily briefing. And if you have an echo or something like that, you get your content that way. Right. And now I could be on a daily every day getting my content out and people just listen to me for five minutes. What a way to get my message out. So that's the next probably big adventure in addition to doing a radio show starting next in a couple of weeks. Uh, Dave Sanderson's Moments Matter. And uh, that's really exciting. Likewise. And so we got a lot of a lot of projects working right now. And in addition to doing a project with Dominique Wilkins and some other people in Atlanta, rolling out uh, what's called the Leadership Mindset Series. And how to be, how what is it one top one percent leaders do? How do they get to that top one percent? Well, I'm going to be with a Hall of Famer and one of the top people at Chick Fil A and and somebody who is an expert at Colby sort of mindset management. And we put together a program and it's going to be really exciting that we've got a lot of a lot of people already signed up for because how often you have a chance to interact with a Hall of Famer to understand what's that Hall of Fame mindset? How do you go from being a player in South Carolina, right, just a high school player, to now you're one of the top 50 players of all time and you're in the Hall of Fame? I'm going to bring that from sort of the perspective of leadership through crisis, right? How do you manage your mind when all stuff's breaking loose? So we're all bringing some unique aspects to this. So that's another project that's kicking off here uh, really shortly. So I'm really honored to be able to be involved with a lot of these people. Oh, that, that is awesome, and I, I would be as well. Um, yep. Dave, how can people connect with you? Well, you know, number one, my website's davesandersonspeaks.com. You know, since I don't have a PA anymore, it comes straight to me, so there's no filter. So if you want to get a hold of me, check me out there. So that's more of my new content and everything I put out, my scheduling. But you can contact me there likewise or through Facebook at my Dave Sanderson Speaks page. That's probably a great way to understand what's going on. LinkedIn is David Sanderson, and that's where I give my sort of my business content. And Twitter is Dave Sanderson too. Where occasional daily quotes, but uh, the like I said, the, the next latest thing we're doing is a daily briefing, a flash briefing. So if you have an Alexa product, an Echo or Show or Spot or anything like that, you know, check me out and just go subscribe to Dave Sanderson Declassified. You'll get to hear uh, some new content, and you'll be hearing some people like you and I just talked about coming with uh, you know, five minutes of their content that every day that will hopefully give you some perspective of what it take to be that one percent. You know, we're going to declassify. Reason I named it declassified, Joe, is we're going to break down all the stuff. How does somebody get to that point? Whether it's a Tony Robbins, a Dominique Wilkins, a Captain Sullenberger, we're going to break it down in five minutes. Say, there's one thing that you could do in five minutes to become take that next step up, hopefully to achieve that to be in the top one percent of whatever you want to be be in. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. I will definitely have to check that out with my uh, Amazon Echoes that I have. Um, yep. You know, Dave, it's been so awesome. It's been an honor to have you on and talk business and talk plane survival and just everything. Um, and I'd love to have you on again in like a year or so and to catch up, see how things are going Let's with your, your business and your processes and all that and how hopefully everything will be going well. Um, before we wrap up here, is there any last thoughts you'd like to share? Well, first, I'd like to give give everybody who's listening a gift because one of the things that I'm doing now as part of the course is um, – I put together a video course based on my book Moments Matter, which is which is uh, I'm really honored to have. And so, if if people would text seven nine seven nine seven nine and put the word embrace the number four impact, they'll get the first video of my course called Overcoming Adversity in Challenging Times. Because one of the things I realized, Joe, is as I travel around the country, especially this last year, there's so many people in distress. I mean, people are so uptight, and you know. So I, especially youth, because a lot of the youth have never had gone through anything like this, 
right? So I talked to youth. It's like I went through Vietnam and I saw how it was handled. We had the communists. That's what we, we dealt with was communism back when I grew up. These kids don't even have deal. So uh, if they text that, I'll, I'll send the first video free. They get it as my gift to them to check out and hopefully pass it on to a youth. It's only 13 minutes long, but has a mindset of how to come overcome adversity in a challenging time and some of those strategies. So that would be my uh, last shot. But I would say if you have a dream, listen, just begin. That's my one of the things I talk about. I learned from John Glenn when I got to meet him uh, back when I was in junior high school. If you want to do anything, just begin it. Just do it. And it was reinforced when I watched the movie The Martian because Matt Damon in the movie said, "How did you get to the Mars?" He goes, "We just began." So if you're if you at any any dreams, just begin it. You're going to make mistakes, but you know what? There's enough resources out there now to be able to help you get to where you need to be. And don't be afraid to reach out. Just like I left that got that business card and called that guy. Right. Had her call him. Don't be afraid to reach out to people. You never know who you're going to interact with. No, I, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And uh, what was that number one last time? Seven, nine, seven, nine, seven, nine. Text that and then put the brace, B-R-A-C-E, the number four impact. And you'll automatically get uh, my first video free as a way to say thank you for listening to us today. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will. I will have that in the show notes. Uh, so for everyone to go and check out. Dave, it has been absolutely awesome to have you here. Um, and if you've enjoyed this episode of The Business Podcast, uh, my my question to you is would you be willing to share this episode and this show with someone that you care about could get something out of it, especially if you've gotten something out of any of the previous episodes or this episode with Dave uh, Sanderson. Dave I really appreciate your time today. And uh, again, I really do look forward to having you on this in the future. And uh, I hope everybody has a, a great, well, we've already passed the new year, but at the time of recording this, we're like two days from the new year. So I hope your new year is going amazing so far. Thank well, you thank again. you, Joe. Thank, thank you. you, Joe. And Joe, I'm going to have you on my daily briefing. So everybody be able to hear Joe for five minutes on my daily briefing. Check him out when we'll get it out. Right, Joe? Absolutely. I would love to. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Business Podcast featuring Super Joe Pardo. Get more business content at superjoepardo.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on The Business Podcast, send an email to joe at superjoepardo.com. The Business Podcast is copyrighted to 234 Solutions, LLC.